Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Today's program is the uh, conclusion of the trialogue between Terence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake on the topic of entities. Earlier today, I was thinking about what Terence said in one of the recent programs about the fact that the discussions they were having weren't just frivolous conversations, but that they were serious investigations into topics that the majority of people seldom think about and are rarely discussed in public. And that, I think, is uh, one of the things that's so appealing about these trilogues. You know, the, the fact that the three of them were willing to be so public about such speculative issues, I think, is really impressive. And the reason I mention that is so that near the end of today's program, when Rupert Sheldrake begins talking about how our current system of civilization is now devouring the Amazon rainforest, well, if you can... Uh, pause there for a moment and give some serious thought to what he has just been talking about. At least for me, it brought about uh, an aha moment of understanding how important these big picture metaphysical concepts may actually be in playing roles here in our physical world. One other thing that you might want to uh, think about is when you hear Ralph Abraham talking about human prehistory in the interglacial period hundreds of thousands of years ago, particularly the uh, point where he talks about the interior life of early humans. Right there is uh, where I think Graham Hancock's book that I referred to in the last podcast uh, comes in. The book is titled Supernatural, Meetings with the Ancient Teachers of Mankind. And in it, he reports on the current state of our understanding about prehistoric cave art. And I think this new book may fill in some of the gaps that Ralph mentions. And with that, we'll uh, get right into the second side of tape six of the trialogue with Terence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake that was held at Esalen in 1989 or 1990. Uh, The set of ten tapes weren't really clear about which year they were recorded, only that it was either 89 or 90, so take your pick. Anyhow, we'll uh, begin by first listening to a few minutes from the end of the last podcast, which was of the first side of the tape titled Entities. Senses that were to be burned. And yes, special well, I'll tell days. you the history of that. You probably know it. Uh, A.E. Wade is derived from the Enochian. The Enochian is the revelation to John Dee of an earlier magic. And when we look in the literature of the pre-Christian Jews in Jerusalem and especially in Alexandria, there we find the Markaba mysticism. Um, in heaven, you know, there's the seventh heaven. I mean, seventh heaven. Actually, there are eight heavens according to the Merkaba mystics. These are visualized as kind of concentric spheres, and this is a particular visualization of the, the, the spirit, of the logos, of the elastic medium between here and the end of the great chain of being, the one God. So uh, in the eighth heaven, you have God in his own castle in his own chambers, and along the way there are these chariots, you know, with the wheels that go this way and this way, and then there's the being that's holding up the chariot, which has four faces, one facing in each direction, the lion and so on, 
And then there's, to get into the chariot, there are the four gates, and each gate has four, eight guardians, four on each side, and you have to repeat each of them with a word, with an incident, and all of this was revealed to travelers who were doing their best to be ambassadors. They were going out to bring back the necessary knowledge for our evolution, and one by one, in successive generations, and they wrote down, they kept their records, and they had their specific means of traveling, which involved putting your head between your knees in a dark room in the basement, for which reason they spoke of going down to the chariot instead of going up to the chariot, which was envisioned in the sky. So these early travelers of the millennium before Christ had brought back this picture, which evolved into what we have today under the name of ceremonial magic in the Western tradition. And since it's a quite a long history of a constant vision, which is a particular, well, verbal, they never drew pictures. They just described this in words, as far as we know, the original manuscripts are extant, many of them collected in, in uh, Jerusalem. And, and translated. And translated from Hebrew into English by several different translators and studied by these scholars known to people so who read So that is Shalman. the root of the sigil, the circle, yes. the holy words, yes. the um, the holy, the letters, whole, the the holy letters, all of that can all be traced back to, to Babylonia, but, but through this Merkaba mystical yes. tradition. Yeah. Very interesting. You see, I keep going back to this thing about language. You get this same peculiar emphasis on language and letters in the esoteric doctrines that surround uh, the chakras in Tantric Shaivism. A huge amount of exegesis goes into the explication of these letters which appear on the petals of the chakras and uh, talking about the ontological status of these letters and what they mean and so forth. It's, it's as though uh, the medium of language itself is under review in these uh, encounters with these entities. It may be that somehow the field of language needs to be prepared for uh, communication with them, or that the field of language can be prepared for communication with them, and that what happened in the West was some kind of peculiar stiffening of language against the ability to perceive and express this stuff that is now beginning to break down. That yes, we have to misuse language. It's our divine responsibility. Yes, and, and that linearity and print and all that conferred upon language an inability to deal with the invisible world in any meaningful way. And so it just became pathology. But now it's returning, and people mm. such as ourselves who have one foot in each world have a real obligation to cognize this and move well, forward. the Indian tradition, according to the theory of Alain Danielu, identifies Shiva with Dionysus. And Dionysus, according to Diodorus Siculus, writing the history of the world in 50 BC, is a translation of Isis to Crete. So there's the suggestion then, combining these two historians, of a transmission from uh, of the Isis um, legend from Egypt to the Indus River. That's uh, it's sort of a suggested transmission there. And if so, we could see the Judeo uh, 
Christian tradition preceding primarily from the Chaldean and the Hindu primarily from the Egyptian. And the enormous differences between these two nearby systems coexisting in the same time and evolving, but in totally different flavors of images and so on. They're really different. The, the language, the, uh, I know, the Indo-European versus the Semitic, basically. Completely different images, language, alphabets, gods, and, 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 and yet, to go back one step, so reaching out, outreach to Chetal Hoyok to, to try to see the common root of the Sumerian, say, Babylonian on the one hand, and the Egyptian um, on the other. Each had a version of the Hermetic tra tradition with magic, with journeys, with the afterlife, and, and, and so on. But here we reach sort of the dawn of, of, of the... the horizon of our current vision into the past is there. We can't really see into Anatolia very well. Well, I believe that the people that you call Egyptian were the African peoples who were coming out of Africa at the, as the glaciation, as the interglacial proceeded, and that the people that you're calling Sumerian were Northern. these older people who had been already crossed into Asia before the, gla the last glacier, mm -hmm. and they were there. And then when these two floods came together during the last melt, uh, history was born in the subjugation yeah. of these... Uh, so this is the horizon you're suggesting that might actually be the Holocene, that the prehistorians never suggest uh, civilizations before the Holocene. There's very little discussion of the intelligent uh, science, mythology, and so on of these, uh, you know, 100, 200, 300,000 year BC, what is going on during these previous interglacials. And it could be that there was agriculture. I mean, there would be no way to rule that out, that there was an agricultural revolution in the, <coughs> in the interglacial before the Holocene. Mm -hmm. So what do they call the Cro-Magnon, or they're the, uh, the Neanderthals, I guess is the usual word for this uh, period of time. So I'm suggesting they had navigation, they had architecture, they had sacred geometry, and they had astrology, and they had magic and travel and their own images of the heavens and the underworld. All of that tradition comes fully formed into the Holocene interglacial from these previous interglacials from the memory of people hiding out in caves, preserving their knowledge in cave drawings. Yes, I think the major cultural artifact that was added during that glacial period that the new people expressed uh, as they moved out of Africa 17,000 years ago was pastoralism. Pastoralism was invented during that last interglacial, during that last glacial period when those populations were bottled up in Africa. All previous human migrations into the Middle East out of Africa had been in the absence of domesticated animals. When you mentioned that this entity theme was uh, of high importance in the Hermetic uh, tradition, was it because you were thinking of the fact that actually the main focus of the of the uh, uh, well, book four of the Hermetic corpus is this animation of statues, 
this was a major concern mm -hmm. of the early Hermetic tradition was to somehow draw the stellar demon down into a simulacrum from which it could then articulate. Yes, this is a high technology of beyond mm -hmm. communications, assisting in the intervention, talking about embassies. Embassies were temples, and if we were going to think about uh, someday a new society of world order, you know, what education would be, what rituals would be, and so on, I, I think we should take count of the fact that um, our culture had evolved around rituals, that they were very important guiding centers, particularly the, um, the Akitu festival, um, the, the paradigmatic New Year's festival that was celebrated annually in Babylonia for 13 years, for, for 2,000 years without missing a beat. This had certain basic elements which characterize our whole history, most particularly the sacred marriage and the sacred procession. The sacred marriage was the obtaining for a, a, a temporary contract for one year between the king, that is to say the social organization of humans in this city-state, with uh, divine god and goddess essentially in charge of prosperity, crops and, and so on. So that was contract was renewed for a year in the New Year's festival in the sacred marriage, which was kind of a ritual that was played out with actors and actresses. But the role of the king was actually played by the king, who actually took his power from the ritual. Then the sacred procession had to do with the hermetic empowerment of the statues of gods and goddesses, which included a lot of animals, mushrooms, and so on. And then these were paraded in a circle tour through the town and everything. And one of the day, usually these festivals lasted 11 days. So there was plenty of time to do a lot of stuff. In fact, Egypt had more festivals than days in the year. It wasn't necessary to go to them. The priests and priestesses did the work for you. You could just keep on working. But every day, one of the temples in one of the cities of Egypt would be having one of these things where they're doing the work for you. And it involved the magical empowerment of these statues. The main theme was celestial magic. I mean, it was the incorporation or the bringing down the inspiration of Gaia with celestial themes, intelligence, and and powers, uh, understanding Gaia as a younger entity than the celestial <coughs> sphere. I would see that as the the key theory, if there is one, in the Hermetic corpus, and the reason why a lot of people nowadays practicing magic are specializing in star magic and trying to reconstruct it from the corrupt mythology of Western astrology. So then, what um, personal experience do, um, do, do we have of entities? I mean, if there are star spirits, as I believe perfectly possible, and I think it's very likely you could invoke them by various kinds of magic, and you could somehow connect with the star, and I think to do that you'd have to look at it. I don't think it's any good doing this just from books. I think you have to lie on, into the sky and actually connect with the star through the line of sight, or do it through a mirror or whatever, but you have to look at it. Um, then, if that's possible, um, what kind of information would such beings impart? We know that they thought that Sirius had particular things, Aldebrand, various stars had particular properties, and you know, Algol was a dangerous one. Um, so there were these uh, widespread beliefs about the properties of particular stars, and then there were lots of hosts of lesser stars, and in fact, most books on angels and most accounts of angels describe them as innumerable. 
as the stars are. And um, the connection of angels and stars is made very explicit in Christian tradition. So there's one class of spirits associated with stars. Now, have you ever met one? And if we haven't met one, which I haven't, uh, could we or would we want to try and meet one by carrying out an appropriate ceremony, invocation in a suitably receptive pharmacological state or whatever? Well, with the proviso suitable pharmacological state, I think suddenly the stage becomes crowded uh, <laughs> with stellar demons, earth demons, and what have you. Um, but do you know for sure that they're stellar demons? Have you ever connected your experience of a stellar demon with directly looking at its resident star and well, connecting yes, through the senses? We, we do have this experience in a limited way. Among the stars, there are all these asterisms, which are among our most ancient knowledge. And I think pictograms, petroglyphs, and so on, in many cases, are drawings of asterisms. It's sort of like a Rorschach when you look at the sky. And there are all these dots, and you could connect them up any way. When there's a tradition of connecting them up in a certain way, then you have an astrological tradition. So mythology, I mean, there's star mythology, is uh, all of the Greek myths, for example, are projected into the sky in these asterisms, or what we call constellations. Mm. So uh, mythology is suggested that myth is from mythos. Mythos meant the, the lyrics, the words of the songs from the rituals, and that the myths gained the power they now have in our conscious and unconscious lives through their secondary role in the ritual, which I think the ritual and the myth together as part of our tradition is one of the most important things for us to regain. And these old rituals were actually the bringing down, I mean, the, the place where star magic was worked successfully to empower our evolution our own experience, like my experience of watching the sky and trying to figure out the asterisms that had only been going on for two or three years. However, in all of these astrological systems that we know, the wanderers are particularly important and most important the sun and the moon. And we do have, I think, travels and communications with the sun and the moon in our recent experience of shamanic uh, journeys and, and dreams. There were during the 1960s in Santa Cruz when I first came there, uh, monthly moon festivals where we did a ritual that we imagined very much to be like the Dionysian festivals in Crete, the Orphic rituals translated to Greece as the Eleusinian mysteries and so on, where psychedelics were sexual rites and star magic were combined into... Um, an annual or monthly ritual of tremendous power, of adequate power to produce prosperity for people, for animals, for plants, and peace. Uh, peace, I think, was not produced by just a partnership paradigm with a lucky society to have escaped the bad habits of the d dominator paradigm. There was also the conscious interaction with the peaceful initiative of the celestial sphere in bringing peace down. I mean, Crete had no fortifications. They had all this wealth. like They had wealth like Kuwait, and they didn't get captured in, until the third millennium. So we have definitely our experience of the sun and the moon, and if we wanted to investigate astrology experientially, then perhaps we could concentrate on the sun and the moon. 
tonight will be a full moon. The moon soul will be in its greatest power. The spirit between the moon and, the, and ourselves, our own soul will be in its most receptive and we can do an experiment. The sun, I think we spoke yesterday of the eclipse of the sun and its uh, the power of this experience in the in the psyche, and that would be also a place where we could look for a modulation of the influence of the sun soul that occurs when the moon soul passes into a linear, rare, collinear arrangement with our own soul. So those are some experiences that we can have really on a daily basis. The uh, star magicians I came to know in Santa Cruz, uh, who came to my class, they get up every day, every morning and evening and watch the sunrise and the sunset, no matter how it disturbs their sleep schedule. And I think I have been very affected by sunrises and sunsets in my own life. Since early babyhood, I have a fantastic fascination with sunrise and sunset. In India, I had seen particularly good ones that I felt to be amplified, their meaning amplified by the appreciation of an entire civilization, a whole country appreciating, knowing, taking the meaning, basking in the rays, and giving conscious attention to sunrise and sunset. Mm. Surya Namaskar and other greetings. Surya Namaskar, a splendid thing to do with the sun is to greet it mm. on its arrival. And, uh, to take note of the fact that it did happen again, which we have no reason to believe that it always will. Well, in our physical environment, we tend to move into cities, move into apartments, exclude nature, push it away from ourselves. In our mental environment, we actually do the same thing. Most people in a culture live in a very conventionalized set of notions that are deeply embedded in other conventionalized notions, far from any edge. I think when, it, when you go to the edges, physically that would mean deserts, jungles, remote and wild nature. And when you go to the edges in your own mind, meaning meditation, dreams, psychedelics, then you discover there's an extremely rich flora and fauna in the imagination that has simply been ignored because our tendency has always been to look inward, to build inward, and to turn our backs on the raging ocean of phenomena around us that entirely overwhelms our metaphors. Well, it's all the satanic spirit of science, isn't it? I mean, if one says, what was it that caused this blindness, the question you raise, um, there's something that happened around the 17th century that Milton described so well in Paradise Lost. There was a consciousness of the spirit of Satan, which is what Paradise Lost is largely about. And there's also a, a taxonomy of the various demons and fallen angels. Uh, which act as malevolent powers that somehow influence things, like mammon, the demon of commercial greed. So if, if mammon is worshipped, then you have a whole society that's motivated by money, mammon's instrument, and entirely under the influence of commercial greed, as our own is, obviously, to a very large extent. So <clears throat> here's this personification of... Satan, and the primary sin of Satan is pride, turning away from God and declaring his own self-sufficiency. Well, 
This is precisely the beginning of turning away from God and the angelic and the whole spirit realm and declaring the self-sufficiency of man. It's the humanist um, illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so you then have this humanist point of view, and then from that all gods, demons, and everything else become projections of the human mind, which now becomes a kind of geocentric universe. I mean, it's, it's like the old geocentric model. You even get it in Ficino, who says man is the measure of all things, when actually the order of intelligence could mm-hmm. have been the measure of all things. Exactly, it's humanism. Mm-hmm. And it's, the, it's this putting man at the center. Um, that's why this uh, adopting this alternative position of recognizing all the living of animism, of going, recognizing the living spirit of all nature and living souls of all nature, um, is profoundly repugnant to humanism, but yet is the common ground of all human civilization, thought, and tradition, apart from this um, deviation that we're, we're thinking about now. Um, so this, this blinding is a kind of satanic pride and, and the spirit of Satan is the spirit of self-sufficiency of, of being in charge and, and denial of, and the spirit of denial um, of the whole other realm. Um, like in Goethe's Faust, I mean Faust being the paradigm scientist selling his soul to the devil in return for unlimited knowledge and power, the paradigm of the entire process. By selling it through ceremonial magic, he invokes Mephistopheles. So the guiding spirit of modern science, according to the Faust myth, is, is, a, is a demon. It's, in fact, a satanic demon, a fallen angel, Mephistopheles. Um, so how seriously does one take, then, the, the, the role of Satan and of malevolent spirits in this disembodied world? Because they're part of its taxonomy and its landscape in many traditions, not only the Christian. Um, and how seriously does one need to take the idea that our whole society and civilization may be under the possession of such a spirit, uh, worshipped through money and other, you know, mammon? <coughs> the spirit of mammon, as Milton describes him in Paradise Lost, he says, even in heaven, his looks and thoughts were always downward bent, admiring more heaven's pavement than aught divine or holy else enjoyed in vision beatific. So there's Mammon, who has this kind of characteristic, of, and, and then how he, when he falls to earth, the first thing he does, he and his crew opened up the sacred hill and digged out ribs of gold. It's the first thing Mammon did when he got to earth, mm-hmm. and started, and, and, and uncovering treasures better hid, Mother Nature's treasures better hid. So here's the description of a demon, which actually is the spirit of our whole civilization by Milton in Paradise Lost as an actual entity. Now, in, in, in that case, it's a kind of poetic entity, but it's also a biblical one, you know, uh, Mammon. And Mammon is, a, is one of the hosts of Satan or of, of the fallen angels. So there's this idea of these malevolent powers that goes back much... In every society, you get these malevolent de- you know, jinns and deceptive spirits and... Um, dangerous entities um, of a kind of, in some sense, autonomous, but in some other sense related to some historical process involving human beings. So the current manifestation of this satanic uh, entity is the impasse in the world petroleum market over supplies, resources, possession, distribution 
Yes, and you, you, obviously, particularly the United States needs this satanic entity to be incarnate, and now it can't be incarnate in Russia anymore. It's um, nowhere for a long time, and the entire imagination could focus on the satanic powers being over there. Um, you know, communism. Now there's a perfect satanic figure emerged for the projection, being Saddam Hussein, you know, his pronouncement about hostages and babies starving and stuff. You know, now he, Hitler, the whole sort of projection thing has got working, and now he's become this totally evil power. So this same projection is operating. And um, the question is, you know, one thing, you see, one thing that does is blind us to the satanic powers within our own civilization. And if we take seriously these entities, how much can we admit the possibility that there are these malevolent entities like mammon or satanic powers or fallen angels, which are actually guiding and perverting the pro progress of science and technology, which are actually intervening and uh, conducting, in many respects, the, the ways of the world through um, influence on people, through inspiration, putting ideas in people's minds, which is how these things work. Um, and, and actually channeling or directing a large portion of human history. You then get back to the classic scenario that there are some people whose consciousness goes beyond that who are fighting on the side of the light, and you get a standard good versus evil, celestial struggle, like the Great War in Heaven, uh, being acted out in, on Earth. And for a lot of people, that's a very plausible picture. I mean, for these Amazonian ayahuasca Christians, the idea that Satan has taken on the force of, like the great dragon, is coming into the forest, devouring it and burning it, as prophecies foretold. This entire system that devours the forests and destroys and so on, this whole technological civilization, Leviathan, as Hobbes called Leviathan. it, is in fact the great dragon, and somehow possessed by its spirit, and that this is an entirely destructive spirit. It's, it's the satanic spirit which is destroying the earth. So then, uh, you then, you see, it's very hard to avoid falling back into this archetype. And then the question is, is that the way it really is? And I see if one allows for autonomous entities, if one allows for them to have a historical rootedness and to represent spirits of things that have happened or spirits that inspired things that have happened, since human history reveals uh, millennia of oppression exploitation, imperialism, enslavement, brutality, torture, uh, and which goes on today, war, domination of every kind. Um, is this influence somehow evolving along with humanity, or in some sense inspiring the development of civilization, or in some sense intimately and inseparably involved from it? Well, probably the process of civilization is going to reveal the final status of this shadow within us because as the constraints of physical resources and energy presumably fall away more and more our self-expression will be unimpeded and we don't know what you get when you get unimpeded human self-expression uh, you know in an architectonic form or social organization or something like that on the other hand, it may be just the gradual devolution in which the same old forms continue to dominate, but become the satanic forms become more and more inflated by energy and attention, as it were, as um, as if there were 
in the mathematics of the process two competing attractors in this dualistic theory of uh, the battle of good and evil in heaven, God and Satan in heaven struggling with each other to attract a multitude of human souls. And the, uh, the forces of evil, as it were, progressively more inflated by the acquisition of more souls, as more and more angels are falling from heaven. And if we wanted, if people could uh, get together and try to conceptualize their, the role of their species in the evolution of the universe, and decide, vote for uh, the forces of good over the forces of evil or something, and then try to redirect the trend of human consciousness and unconsciousness toward this other attractor, it would be necessary to, I suppose, to do interventions on this level with ritual, with magic, with astrology, with inspiration, with imagination, in which attention was redirected to uh, the positive forms if we can find them, if we can identify them. Probably everything is disguised as something else, and our ignorance is enormous. But uh, traditionally, I think, through the study of world mythology, ritual, religion, and so on, in the sense of Joseph Campbell, let us say, we could identify, we could, let us say we could successfully identify the good genies and then design rituals. Let us say we try to present music and visual music on MTV and on uh, the world cable network so that people could be ex exposed to visualizations and harmonizations of these good forms selected through from the world history of mythology, religion, and mm. so on. Collect up some of these good rituals, like we felt moon rituals were in the 1960s, and do them, present them on TV, and so on. Would they, or would they not, attract souls? And my feeling is that the uh, enhanced, the winning attractiveness of the satanic form somehow is irreversible at this time as far as the human species is concerned, is practically the only evil species as far as we can see. And uh, I don't know about AIDS and so on, that might be actually a celestial intervention. The evil forms, satanic images have been most successful with people, at least during this patriarchal time of the past 6,000 years which seems to coincide with the dawn of history, so we don't even know exactly what, what preceded in the early history of our species. So could Eros provide a counter-attractor? Well, I would think so. It's a fantastic. It's, it's, it's more interesting than evil. It's, it's still, well, it's, the forces of evil, of course, have adopted every attractor, uh, like mammon. I mean, money is perhaps not necessarily bad, and prosperity is not necessarily bad, but it seems to have been uh, engulfed by the forces of evil. Likewise, uh, sexual images ha have been are used extensively and have become almost totally identified with evil. So the shadow side of sexuality in our culture has has dominated. So how could that be reclaimed? 
How could you even begin that? I think we'd have to ask the stars for guidance. I'm very positive about the Green Revolution, and I think the revival of the Gaian soul and our consciousness of uh, the Earth as a living or divine being is very important. But still, I don't think this is enough. I don't think we could make it out of this cul-de-sac without the stars. So I think we need the Gaian and we need the chaotic, that is, the celestial sphere, to be reconnected, to be coupled to the human spirit in such a way that uh, their, their part, and that is the ultimate partnership. You're dreaming the dream of alchemical revolution that would do pride to a renaissance make it. And that's mm-hmm. essentially what well, you're calling for. What yes, uh, it's very close to John Dee's dream. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. John Dee's failed dream. And his dream failed because the Thirty Years' War wiped out the possibility of an alchemical kingdom in Central Europe. Queen Elizabeth withdrew uh, from participating in this partnership even before she died. And uh, I think that is, is a key... The failure of courage on the part of uh, Queen Elizabeth might be an important historical element in our own fall from a divine path. But we can Mm -hmm. always try again. And where would the new alchemical kingdom be? I think it would probably have to be in Czechoslovakia. You know, there's not much choice of chance of Bush's America turning into it, or Britain at the moment. Well, that was where the and original alchemical yes. kingdom was planned for, was Prague. Prague. for Prague. That's right. Well, and you're on, you're on your way. way. <laughs> I will discuss it with proper <laughs> officials. <laughs> I think I've been in Prague, and I, I think that it's a really dark place, and there is very little hope of illuminating it at this time. And I have my highest hopes for England, as a matter of fact. I always have been a great Anglophile. And uh, particularly now, I think it's very auspicious there, the number of people who are thinking and reviving in great detail and with great love and integrity all of these old things, digging in the archaeology of the mind and trying to seek rituals and actually perform them and, and live them. Well, why don't we call it quits there? Okay. Did you find it as uh, fascinating as I did when Rupert Sheldrake was talking about the Faustian story of Metasopheles? And then he brought out the fact that the United States has always needed a demon to keep it from examining the satanic powers within our own civilization. And then he went on to say that after the fall of the USSR, the focus was shifted to Saddam Hussein. (laughs) Now keep in mind that this trilogue took place before the first Gulf War. And now that we seem to be only weeks away from the state-sponsored murder of the very same Saddam Hussein, the search for a new Satan is underway. It looks like the American fascists in Washington are focusing on Iran, while the rest of the country, and the rest of the world for that matter, sees the new Satan as that insane little bush fellow. Ah, the world is in flux once again, don't you think? There's uh, some kind of a new tidal shift in human consciousness that's already begun. I know a lot of you can feel it because you tell me so in your emails. What it will amount to and where it will lead us still isn't clear, at least to me. 
But being an incurable optimist, I can't help but believe that things are going to work out just fine. And uh, those of you who have had the great good fortune to have ventured very deep into the far reaches of entheospace know exactly what I mean. I know that Trey understands because in a recent email he said, I know this thing with the great world age shift is really going to happen because I've somehow known it my whole life. And uh, my bet is that a, a lot of us have felt that way too, Trey. I also received an interesting email from Justin who writes in response to a question I asked a while back about what some of you are doing as the year 2012 approaches. Well, Justin is uh, part of a new rock group called Bavom. It's V-A-V-O-H-M. And uh, here's what he had to say. Our intention with our music is to break people from their molds of habit, get them thinking psychedelically, and suggest how to properly align their dreams with their will. I guess you could say that we're of the mind that what happens on 2012 is what we can create. But the lines between doing and being done to are getting harder and harder to discern. The music draws on as many influences as musical history has to offer, from Mingus to Motown, Beatles to Mozart, Radiohead to Pink Floyd, and Michael Bolton. Mix it all up, sprinkle a bit of future perspective on it, and you end up with what's been called post-historical rock. Well, on a personal note, I, I think that uh, one of their tracks is also reminiscent of an old favorite of mine called Morphine. The band, that is, not the drug. Anyway, it's, uh, it's good to know that there still remains a future for psychedelic-inspired rock music. I don't know about you, but there's just something about Pink Floyd and mushrooms that seem to go together for me. Also this week, I received an email from Ben... And by the way, I'm not sure if you guys want me to mention your last names here in the podcast or not, so I'll continue to only use first names unless you specifically tell me otherwise. But Ben, and I hope I'm not breaking a rule here, <laughs> Ben is also known as Valley Sequence on Arrowwood's Visionary Arts Vault. In fact, uh, Valley Sequence is the featured artist for December 2006. And uh, here's part of what he had to say in his email. I am writing in regards to psychedelic art and its relation to the coming technological-slash-consciousness shift. The lecture series by Terence McKenna was very inspiring. When he asked what form this shift would occur or how it would first be seen, it seems that Terence would point to art as the domain for the most future growth. I am a traditional and digital artist and am seeking innovative ways of synthesizing the traditional with the digital and to create expressions that deal with the medium of perception itself. He said that the coming art would be an art with teeth, and that's what I see too. And uh, if you check out his work on the Arrowwood site, you will uh, see what he means. I'm really blown away that an artist this gifted is one of our regulars here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, Ben is correct in his observation about Terence McKenna's position on the importance of art. I've heard Terence express that thought from many different directions, uh, one of which is that today's artists are actually creating a new language for us to use in communicating some of the experiences that we have in entheospace. I don't know about you, but when I go to the Arrowwood Vault and look at Ben's painting that's simply titled 4981, I'm swept up in a range of emotions that I experienced a long time ago when 
I saw, <laughs> I think I saw, a very similar vision one night. And that was only the first painting in the series on Arrowwood. Uh, needless to say, it wasn't the only familiar sight that Valley Sequence captured for me. What an interesting and talented clan we have here in the salon. Before I go, I guess I should mention again that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, you can check on the link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which can be found at matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. And if you still have questions, you can send them in an email to me. The address is lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. And thanks again to Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And a uh, special thank you goes out to Ralph Abraham and Bruce Damer for seeing to it that the tapes of these trialogues were preserved and digitized. And from the email I've been receiving, I think it's safe to say that uh, there are now thousands of other people around the world who would also like to thank you guys. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends, and may you all have a joyous and peaceful new year.